1: From Russia, with love. Hello, this is the Naked Neuroscience Podcast with me, Hannah Critchlow, and I'm reporting from Lake Baikal in Siberia. In this special episode, I visited Russia for a conference, and from there, we'll be finding out about how Russian neuroscience research is getting a colossal injection of cash from the government. Research fresh from the labs, how nicotine switches off attention in the teenage brain, and how a new technique is uncovering similarities and differences. Between the rodent and human brain. Plus, I visited the Banya, a Russian sauna to be whipped with birch leaves. It's, an it's really cooling um, and incredibly pleasant. Uh, I'm getting nice rushes of air my face as you're whipping me. Um, I don't know what to say, I'm speechless actually. That was all in the name of embracing local culture and demonstrating science, or so I was told. This is the Naked Neuroscience podcast with me, Hannah Critchlow, brought to you in association with the Wellcome Trust and in partnership with the British Neuroscience Association. Kicking off the programme, I was invited to the inaugural Siberian Neuroscience Conference at Arkutsk and Lake Baikal after travelling over 8,200 kilometres from Cambridge, stopping by at Moscow Airport and finally arriving in Arkutsk, a city nestled in Siberia. A population of over half a million and initially set up as a port town for gold trading and later to house political dissidents during the Decemberist revolt against Tsar Nicholas I in the early 19th century. I've flown through seven time zones and now find myself not far off the latitude of Brittany and the longitude of Bangkok. From Irkutsk, a little group of neuroscientists took a little holiday. We spent two days to get over the jet lag and relax before the conference began. Nestling near the city of Irkutsk is Lake Baikal. It's the most voluminous and breathtakingly crystal clear freshwater lake in the world. So vast, containing 20% of the world's unfrozen freshwater. The lake and its surrounding ecosystem nurse over 1,700 species of plants and animals, two-third of which are unique to Baikal. Given this, and perhaps unsurprisingly, Baikal was declared a UNESCO World Heritage Site in 1996. In order to explore, we took a little speedboat. to escape into the wilderness to a hamlet housing 20 or so wooden huts, all nestled by the lake. Here we walked, sampled the local cuisine, where the menu was mostly fish caught fresh from the lake.
2: Enjoyed
1: the local tipple of vodka, yeah. And spent evenings by the campfire, singing and having some pre-conference science chats. When fully restored, we returned back to Erkutz for the meeting. To start with, I briefly spoke with two of the conference organisers, Dr Andy Irving and Dr Andre Rozov, both from Dundee University, Scotland. First up, I asked why they organised this conference specifically in Erkutz. Andy starts with his response.
3: That's a very good question. I think there's a lot of reasons, and part of it is because. It's such a beautiful, stunning place to hold a conference. But also it's an opportunity to take science and neuroscience in particular to a unique area and to connect with what's going on in Russia and to get to the heart and soul of Russian science, I think.
2: Well, it's my hometown and I remember better times when science was growing and I think if we make this conference here, so it will help local scientists to meet international scientists, and it might improve scientific situation. And as since I'm local here, I would like to share the beauty of Siberia with other people. That's always a fantastic thing.
1: It is stunningly beautiful here, and there's some excellent scientists as well that are going to be presenting during the conference. Um, so when when were you brought up in our cuts?
2: Well, I've been born in 1968, and I did study biology in in Irkut State University and at that time we had multiple very efficient institutions but then money were not financed anymore to science and that's why a lot of actually excellent scientists had to look for new positions abroad and that's, that's what we call brain drain and at the moment it's getting a bit better because Russian economy is doing a bit better uh, before we had socialist system and money was simply decided. They go there. So, and whether they bring profit or not, it was a secondary issue. Once we switched to capitalism, so everything is supposed to bring profit. So if they don't gain money within a couple of days, so they don't invest. And if you, you never gain money in science within a couple of days, you have to wait for decades and probably you will never get your money back.
1: And at what time period was that, that there was a decrease in funding for sciences here in Russia?
2: I would say it's as of beginning of 19th to beginning of maybe 2002 the situation started to recover a bit.
1: And Andy, so you've been one of the lead organizers with Andre here in organizing this conference. What do you think it's going to bring to the UK delegates and also the delegates from elsewhere in Europe? Well, I
3: think networking opportunities and and particularly internationalizing the science that we do. You know, Russia has a tremendous resource in very highly educated, very dedicated scientists and and i think we can engage with that and we can help from the west you know to bring maybe research collaborations where we we exchange visits students or whatever and i think this is it's an opportunity to to be part i think of of a renaissance potentially in 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 russian science it's not going to happen straight away but i think i think the the signs are good and i think uh, the future is is is
2: exciting
1: and traditionally, Russia had particular strengths in science. Can you just outline for our listeners some of those areas?
2: OK, so Russia used to be very good and is very good in science, for instance. If we talk about physics and mathematics, we should remember Karolov, who actually built this, the first spaceship. Mendeleev, who created a periodic system which helps every chemist now to understand uh, chemistry. So. And uh, there are many other names
1: and specifically in neuroscience. So, Andy, can you tell us a little bit about Pavlov?
3: Yeah, I think Pavlov has had a, a massive impact on on science in general, particularly neuroscience in the West. I think his studies on association and fear conditioning really relate to uh, post-traumatic stress disorders and, and, and how we think about and maybe treat these uh, currently.
2: Khodorov would be another name. He's still active and he, he is very well recognized throughout the world and by, for instance, Nobel Prize winners like Bert Zachman. So he actually was looking how neurons are talking to each other by using electrophysiology techniques.
1: Thanks, Andre and Andy, organisers of the conference in Siberia. So Russia has a history of strong science, but diminishing funding over the last few decades has caused many researchers to move to other parts of the world. What can the Russian government do to try to tempt the scientists back and reverse the brain drain? I sat in the Siberian sunshine with one young Russian scientist to discuss this issue.
4: Hi, I'm Maratmin Libayev from Russia, and I was born in Kazan.
1: And where's Kazan?
4: So Kazan, for me, it's like suburbs of Moscow, because the Russia is so big, and 800 kilometres from Moscow, it's so small distance. So it's close to Moscow.
1: (laughs) So 800 kilometres, and it's the suburbs of Moscow. And what's it like in Kazan? I believe that you studied science there.
4: Um, I have to say that I'm a medical doctor. And then uh, instead of going to medicine, I decided to switch to science. And after th- thesis, I said no, because medicine is so conservative. And then I stayed in science instead of going to clinic.
1: And you did all of your studies here in Russia? Mm,
4: yeah, 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 yeah. I did uh, all the experiments for my thesis in Russia, but in Kazan. And then... then During my PhD, I visited several conferences where I was recruited. So when I defended my thesis, uh, I already knew where I will move.
1: And where was that?
4: Uh, Marseille, south of France.
1: And how long have you been in the south of France now?
4: Eight years.
1: You look quite happy about having lived in Marseille for the last eight years.
4: You know, it's difficult to be very sad if you are surrounded by the mountains, sea, good people, nice laboratory, sun, uh, warm.
1: And how does it compare to Russia?
4: In terms of science, now it's it's difficult to compare because even in Russia we can uh, we have better laboratory in Russia than in France. So it's. Uh, it, it's already equipped with a more modern equipment and uh, we have a very nice team and we have about 20 persons in Russian laboratory and uh, in France we are only three in our small team. Yep.
1: So you're now spending half of your time in Russia and half of your time in France and doing research at both different laboratories?
4: <laughs> Not at all. So uh, my students spend half time in Russia and half time in France, but as for me, uh, I'm recruited in France, so 80% of my time I have to, to be in French laboratory. Uh, Skype forever.
1: And you mentioned that your laboratory in Kazan has got 24 people working in it and is very well equipped. How has that come about? What kind of funding have you received for that?
4: We have super patron, we have super chef, Rustem Kazipov, who has got a mega grant from Russian government to organise a laboratory during three years, and after this period we have to leave this lab completely independent. So
1: it's kind of like a, a start-up funding scheme by the government, and you're calling it a mega grant. How much is this mega grant? How much are the government investing?
4: Uh start it's not the right... It's not the right word because uh, startup, it means that you, if you get startup, you organize your own lab. But we are hired by the Russian government to, to make the laboratory in Russia, for Russia. Yeah. So we are like temporal workers. And this mega grant is about five million dollars for three years with the possibility to, to apply um, for extra two years.
1: So $5 million, I mean, that's a huge investment, and I'm presuming that... Is this, is this on top of the standard government investment in science that's already been going on?
4: Uh, for the moment, this is the biggest grant I have uh, heard in Russia. But I don't know, maybe they will do bigger, bigger grants. Nobody knows about that.
1: And how many of these awards, these mega grants, have the government given out in the last few years?
4: I'm not completely sure, but I have heard, I have been said that about 40 different uh, groups in different branches of science got this type of grant. So it's about $200 million for three years.
1: So an additional investment by the Russian government of $200 million over three years. Um, That's a sizable figure. Why do you think the government is investing so heavily in science in Russia at the moment?
4: If I am patriot of Russia, I have to say that um, the future is done today by science. But uh, honestly saying I think it's a very good investment because uh, industry, medicine, all everything that around us is firstly built by science. Maybe maybe or I believe in that.
1: And what areas are the government grants being given in? Is it spanning all areas of science or is it a particular targeted focused area?
4: So as far as I know, all, all branches of science are covered by this. So groups from different branches of science applied for this grant. I know physicists, mathematics, uh, biology, neuroscience.
1: And what is it that you're specifically looking at investigating in the lab in Kazan?
4: Um, we are doing pretty the same as uh, I do in Marseille so immature or development of our central neural system but in Marseille I'm doing uh, research in um, studying image patterns of activity and in Kazan we do everything during development of central neural system even recordings from spinal cord so we cover uh, everything during this specific period
1: so the government are really for your research funding very basic research of how the nervous system develops, and at the moment it hasn't got a direct clinical application so ramifications for patients, is that right? Uh,
4: you know there is another word, fundamental. It doesn't mean that uh, this, um, the results of these fundings will uh, will be applied in clinic immediately Maybe, maybe in several years or maybe in tens of years but anyway everybody hopes that the results of his research will be applied for, for something important.
1: And do you think you could ever be lured back to being full-time in Russia as a researcher?
4: And for what reason? To do science, I can do science in France and in Russia. Or uh, if we have the best equipment in Russia, I can go back to Russia. But if uh, I will be much more successful in France, I will stay in France.
1: And the government, I presume that they keep the intellectual property for any research that they funded within the Russian lab?
4: I don't know, yeah. That's uh, intellectual property, have no idea.
1: And in terms of publication, do you publish your results in public scientific journals as you would do in France?
4: Uh, yes, but I think that there is no national journals So if you have nice results, it doesn't make any sense that you you will publish it in Russian journal or in English one or even Chinese one. So the results will be spread to all the scientific community.
1: So all of the results generated from the Russian lab are accessible by other scientists?
4: Yes, it's it's uh, it's normal condition. I think it's normal science if you spread your results for everybody who wants to know something more. Thank you. Welcome,
1: Morat Morani from Russia, and we'll be speaking with another Russian scientist shortly about her work on how nicotine wires the brain for inattention in the teenage brain, and her thoughts on the future of Russian research. But firstly, I met up with one of the speakers at the conference to find out about her work. Hi, I'm Dr
5: Rosamund Langston, and I'm a behavioural neuroscientist. I've just uh, started my own lab at the University of Dundee in Scotland. I'm actually studying uh, the development of memory,
1: Ah, memory. So fish, apparently they've only got a seven second memory. Is that
5: true? Um, No, I think it's probably more true of me than a fish. I think fish probably have a better memory. Um, There's actually uh, a researcher down in Oxford and she trains zebrafish on all kinds of different memory tasks.
1: And what kind of memory task does she get zebrafish doing in their tank?
5: Well, they have to swim through mazes in their tanks. So they have like a, a water-based maze, and they have to choose a direction, like left and right, and up and down. And she's actually studying their kind of three D memory and navigation. And so it's it's not something I do, but I do find it quite intriguing the the fish work there. And and there's quite a fish theme going on in Siberia with our diet for the last few days. So.
1: Well that myth has been debunked so fish do not have a seven second memory and they actually swim through water mazes and remember their way, navigate their way through in order to get a little fish treat at the end of the maze, that's nice. Um, But you don't work on fish, you work on uh, a different system.
5: Yeah so I work with laboratory rodents so rats and mice actually Um, but for my main work now I'm working on uh, rats purely because I'm looking at development so I'm looking at basically baby and sort of adolescent animals and so some of the things we actually have to do mice are just too small. And what kind of memory test do you do on a rat? So um, I'm really interested in episodic memory. So this is kind of like our memory for unique things that happen to us in our everyday lives. It's a part of the declarative memory system. So we have procedural memory and declarative memory. And procedural memory is learning how to ride a bike or play a musical instrument. So you practice it and you can do it, but you couldn't really tell someone how to do it. It's something you have to learn. Whereas declarative memory is memory for facts and events that you can kind of tell someone about. And we're in declarative memory, which can also be split up into memory for facts and memory for events. So events is what I'm interested in, because this is a type of memory that tends to decline first in mild cognitive impairment, like you see at the beginning of Alzheimer's disease, or even Huntington's and Parkinson's disease. So the sort of type of memory that you see first declining in dementia patients. So episodic memory uh, is memory for events that happen to you, but they're kind of very unique memories. So I might say to you, people eat breakfast in the mornings. And you would be like, yeah, I know that. And I would say, well, how do you know that? And you'd be like, well, I just know. You know, you've just learned it over time. You don't ever have to eat breakfast to know that. But if I said to you, what did you have for breakfast this morning? Where were you and who were you with? Then you have to really replay the whole scene in your mind. And you have to really remember all the, all the different aspects. It's not a generic breakfast fact. It's like one unique event. And so it's this memory for unique events. Like, where did I leave my car keys last night? Where did I park my car yesterday that's really important for for people to remember and recall um, and that's what people tend to have trouble with when they have episodic memory problems
1: and so how do you look at this type of memory in the rat well
5: what i actually do is effectively spot the difference for rats the things you find in magazines where you look at two pictures and you have to circle all the different things you can find between the two pictures we basically do that with rats because rats mice pigs dogs all kinds of animals really like novelty so if you make them a sort of environment to explore and you allow them to become familiar with it, and then you change something in that environment, they very quickly notice the change. And they show you that by exploring something that's changed um, a lot more than they explore something that stayed the same. And by measuring how much they explore something new, we can kind of assume memory for something old. So they look at something new because they remember the old things and they're not interesting anymore. So I basically put rats into environments where they get to explore toys. They get to play with rat toys. And then I'll move the toys around. I'll give them new toys. I'll change the positions of the toys. I'll try and test how long ago they saw the toys and if we can combine all these things it's like trying to remember who you had breakfast with where you had breakfast what you had for breakfast so what toy did you see where did you see it when did you see it it's kind of my rat equivalent of episodic memory
1: and you're looking in the baby pup rats at this to try and see how memory develops in the first place and then comparing it to the older rat brain
5: Yeah, that's right. So this innate sort of novelty seeking thing um, that rats and other rodents and other animals have is present from very young. So at the moment, I've been testing rats as young as 17 days where they've only just really opened their eyes and started to leave the nest. They already have a preference for novel toys. So if they get a choice of a new toy or an old toy, they always choose a new toy. It's probably like a little kid. I don't have kids of my own, but I'm thinking that this is why you have to buy them so much new stuff all the time. It's because they like new stuff. But what these really small rats can't remember is where things appeared in the environment. They know if a toy is new or old, but they can't remember where they saw it. This doesn't develop until quite a lot later, like the fourth or fifth week of life. And then we can introduce more things like when did they see it, which testing box did they see it in. And the more complex you make the memory, the older it seems the rat has to be before it can actually solve the task. And at what age does this develop in the human baby? there's quite a lot of debate in the literature about when children develop different kinds of memories because laboratory testing is very different from a parent saying yes yes of course my child remembers so it's actually quite quite a hot debate in the literature but very young babies can detect a novel toy from a familiar toy and they will pick a novel toy but apparently it's maybe more like sort of 3 or 4 years old before they can really recall a full event and all the kind of other things that went with it the context of the event who they were with and this kind of information so these kind of associative memories that involve a lot of different stimuli don't necessarily develop until kind of toddler age or a little bit older
1: and how does that compare to the rats so their a rat's lifespan might be about two years so 17 days in or you know maybe a month in or so how does that compare to the lifespan of a human I'm just trying to go through the maths on that one.
5: It's very difficult to compare directly, of course, because rats are born with their eyes closed. They open their eyes when they're two weeks old. They're reliant on the mother for a lot less time than a human child. But if you look just directly in terms of timescale of lifespan, I guess we're looking at about like five percent through the lifespan, which would be a similar age, a sort of five-six week old pup to maybe a toddler, right? So we it could be a kind of we could make an actual kind of comparison between the lifespans of the the rodent and the the human. So yeah, at maybe sort of five, six weeks old, this is when the rat pups start to develop a full kind of episodic memory. So they could tell you who they were having breakfast with and what they ate and where they were, whereas your three-week-old pup might only remember what it had for breakfast. And that's the equivalent of your toddler or maybe three-year-old being able to really recall a full event, whereas your little baby can only tell you if it's got a new toy or an old toy.
1: Are you seeing any changes in the brain that correlates with this acquisition of um, episodic memory skills in the rat pup?
5: So it's quite exciting really because although
1: there have been studies done on certain types of memory in in young
5: sort of rodents, um, no one's ever really looked at episodic memory, and that's because there haven't been good tasks to test it. But part of my PhD was trying to develop accurate tasks to look at memory in rodents that really mirrors memory in humans. So what we're trying to do is characterize the time scale of memory development, and then as soon as we've done that, um, which we're starting now, we're trying to look at the anatomy of the brain and find out which brain regions are coming online at the times when these memory skills are developing. Um, And then we're able to look in more detail and look at the mechanisms and the sort of synaptic communication between the nerve cells at these times to see how they're talking to each other and how they're making us form memories.
1: So setting up exciting experiments, looking at how rats respond to new toys and then, and then trying to find out exactly what's going on in the brain as this episodic memory develops. And then hopefully being able to apply that to a greater, greater understanding of what goes wrong in Alzheimer's and Parkinson's, for example, or stroke or Huntingdon's when episodic memory starts to fail. Thank you, Ros. Thanks very much. That was great to talk to you.
5: And uh, I'm very excited about the conference. I have some vague memories of Russia because about 15 years ago, I was in St. Petersburg. So I have my own episodic memories that I'm uh, reliving at the moment. But I'm really looking forward to uh, to giving the talk and to be able to discuss with some Russian neuroscientists uh, what's going on in this part of the world.
1: That was Dr. Rosamond Langston from Dundee University, taking a twist with neuroscience, looking at infants to gain a better understanding of brain diseases in old age. Moving from infant brain development to the teenage brain with a shock finding on how nicotine in cigarettes has detrimental effects on attention years down the line. I met with another speaker at the conference, firstly finding out what it's like to grow up in Russia.
0: My name is Natalia Gorinova. So, I have a PhD in neuroscience. I was uh, born and uh, brought up in St. Petersburg. I first went to university in St. Petersburg uh, for five years.
1: And what was it like growing up in St. Petersburg? I've, I've never been myself, but I've heard it and, and seen
0: pictures. It seems like it's a beautiful city. St. Petersburg is indeed a very beautiful city, and uh, I was brought up with the idea that it's the most beautiful city in the world. Though I think now that it was not true, uh, because uh, when I first went uh, abroad, I went to London and uh, I was amazed how how beautiful it is. I actually grew up during uh, Perestroika, so during the times of Gorbachev and uh, the whole rebuilding of the system and um, collapsing of Soviet Union, we had to queue uh, for bread and for all products, so instead of playing outside, you would uh, go with your parents uh, to shop and Wait in the queue uh, just to buy some food, and how many, how long would it take to queue just for your bread for the day? We did it really almost every day. So every day you you would go to a shop and just look for some food that was available there. And I even remember sometimes uh, standing in the queue uh, outside in the in the cold for for example bananas, and we would take turns and warm up somewhere in the next building. I think I just, uh, I just wanted to travel uh, a lot. And uh, I w- not because I wanted to escape uh, that, but I wanted to see uh, how people live in other countries. So you've just presented at the conference mm-hmm. and you're probably quite exhausted
1: because you've flown all the way over from Europe. So there's a bit of jet lag mm-hmm. kicking in. So thank you for speaking with us
0: today. But what was it that you were just presenting? So I uh, talked about my PhD work in Amsterdam. So my project was on the long-term effects of nicotine during adolescence. And I think what um, made me so interested in uh, that is also the fact that I smoked a lot when I was an adolescent. So for me, it was also a bit of a personal topic. And I I was interested uh, how the brain changes after.
1: And does it have an effect then, this smoking for many teenagers? I don't know what the stats is
0: for the number of teenagers that smoke. Well, the stats um, uh, nowadays are improving, uh, but still it's about 20% uh, of teenagers in Europe that smoke. And in countries such as Russia, it's even worse. It's about 50% of uh, all teenagers that smoke.
1: And what kind of effect might this be having on their brain? Because a teenage brain is developing at a fanatical rate. There's lots of changes going on there with the connections and also fat wrapping itself around different nerve cells as well. There's so much change going on. So what effect would nicotine do to the teenage brain?
0: Well, you're absolutely right. The teenage brain is developing uh, a lot uh, during adolescence. And even, uh, even to the mid-20s. And the most changes that happen in the adolescent brain uh, happen in the prefrontal cortex. And this is the area of the brain, uh, well, in the front of your head. And this area is uh, responsible for higher cognitive functions, such as attention and uh, control of your behavior, the ability to plan and uh, to make decisions. So basically all the functions that really make us human. So what happens in the adolescent brain is that prefrontal cortex is uh, not mature at that age and still has to rewire all the connections. And, uh, so you can imagine if you smoke during this age and uh, you expose your brain to nicotine, then nicotine impairs uh, this normal development. And you're looking at this not in the human brain, but in a different system. So it's very difficult to look uh, at the human brain, let's say inside of the human brain, and uh, look at the, for example, receptors and proteins that change in the, the human brain. So for that we use rodents, we use rats and rats just like humans have a period of adolescence they show typical adolescent behaviors and just at this age we give nicotine to those animals how are you giving them nicotine i mean are you handing them a cigarette or and lighting it whilst they hold it in their paw Well, there are different ways of giving nicotine. For example, you can give in patches, but we decided for a different uh, way of giving the uh, nicotine because we really want to mimic binging smoking uh, during adolescence. So we inject nicotine under the skin of those animals three times a day, as if they smoked for uh, a couple of cigarettes one after another at one time. And what kind of effect does this binge smoking have on on the rodent adolescent brain? So we are really interested in the long-term effects of nicotine. Uh, First thing that we see is that uh, these animals are unable to focus their attention in the same way as control animals. So they make more mistakes in the attention performance task and they are also more impulsive so they make more premature responses in the task. And that's even in adulthood after this adolescence this teenage binge smoking. Yes, uh, we measure in adult animals, but what we find is that if we treat the animals with nicotine during adulthood, so when they grow up and they pass this critical age of adolescence, we don't find uh, the same effects. So there is no differences between the animals that receive nicotine during adulthood or controls. I mean, this is quite a profound finding.
1: There's 50% of teenagers in Russia, for example, that are smoking. It's going to have long-term detrimental effects on their attention and their focus later on in life. I mean, if this finding does translate into humans, and do you think that it could translate into
0: humans? Well, we certainly think that uh, this, these effects can translate in uh, in humans. Uh, the most important thing in our research is not only that we find the effects of nicotine on uh, cognition, because these effects are also found in humans and uh, they are uh, well documented, but that we look at the mechanisms of those effects, what kind of receptors change. And what we find is that there is one receptor that is not connected to nicotinic receptor, a receptor that is involved in the um, release of excitatory transmitter glutamate, Metamotropic Glutamate Receptor 2, we find that this receptor is changed after nicotine exposure. And it's this glutamate receptor which then causes the deficits in attention later on in life. So what we found is that this receptor, there is less of this receptor in the brain uh, after nicotine exposure during adolescence, and the function of this receptor is also impaired, what we also found is that uh, when we improve the function of this receptor by uh, stimulating this receptor with pharmacology, with drugs, then we can also improve attention. So in that case, is there any possibility that you
1: could somehow tweak cigarettes so that it, in the first place, doesn't affect this receptor Mm -hmm. during adolescence? Mm -hmm. Or could you reverse that damage done on the brain so that people later in life, if they've been smoking during adolescence, they can regain
0: their attention? So this is a very interesting possibility. So what we've done is indeed in animals, uh, we can reverse the effect of nicotine. So what we did is that we injected this drug directly in the prefrontal cortex of the animals before they perform the task. And of course, with humans, you cannot reach the specificity. So if you design a drug, if you design this drug that will stimulate this receptor, you stimulate it all over the brain and then it's very difficult to predict the effects of it. Natalia continues her
1: research in Marseille, France and will be returning to speak with her later to find out if she could ever be lured back to living in Russia. But first, I took a little interval to immerse myself in Russian culture. Andy Irving took me to the Banya. But what exactly Is one of those.
3: It's uh, a place to relax and to uh, experience sauna-like conditions in Russia.
1: So it's a typical Russian leisure time activity, particularly for those cold, chilly evenings by Lake Baikal in Siberia. And in the banyan, uh, men and women go into a very hot room that's been heated by burning logs. And it's basically a sauna where, um, in order to cool down after ten minutes of heat... Men whip each other with birch leaves. And Andy's is entering the sauna with some of the birch leaves. it's hot in here, isn't it?
6: It's is hot.
1: And I'm joined by three other neuroscientists, and we are actually naked. So we are doing a naked scientist interview. That's nice. And you are?
6: Mark Cunningham from Newcastle University. And Jamie Ancients from St Andrews University. And Andy Irving from Dundee University.
1: Hello and so what's going on in my head as I enter the sauna? I mean obviously there's a lot of dopamine being released in the nucleus accumbens as I'm feeling reward and pleasure at the sight of you all here in in the Banya. (laughs) Uh, Aside from that is there anything else that's going on?
6: There's probably a fair amount of activity in your amygdala at the abject fear that's also going on at at, at the same time, but um, there'll be some processes going on so we know, for example, that if you increase temperatures in the brain then you affect some fairly physiological, uh, fairly fundamental physiological mechanisms, so things like um, the oscillations in your brain will vary quite dramatically depending on the temperatures.
1: So there's nerve endings on my skin and they're sending lots of electrical signals up to my brain, to region of the brain that are regulating temperature and sensing the temperature, and that is causing different electrical activity oscillations? Yeah.
6: Well, thankfully it isn't happening right now, given that the body spends a lot of time basically making sure that our, our, our brain stays at a relatively constant temperature. So if, um, if we stayed in here for a long time and we have a little timer on the wall to tell us when we need to get out, then uh, we might see, start to see these sort of fundamental mechanisms changing, as I say, quite dramatically, and that would be fairly bad. So if we could sort of record brain activity at the moment, that might be one way to tell each other when we should be getting out of yeah. here. As I say, Martin knows more about this than me. So, yeah, so at the minute, the temperature in the Banya is close to 70 degrees centigrade, which is obviously very far away from what we're uh, used to uh, at room temperature. And so one of the things that our brain will try to do is it will obviously try to kick in with feedback mechanisms to maintain a form of homeostatic balance. And one way that it does this is through thermoregulation. One of the most obvious examples of thermoregulation is the fact that we are now perspiring quite a lot. Uh, again, to try and sort of control the core temperature. As I'm I'm
1: glowing, not perspiring, and definitely not sweating.
6: You're you are you are you are glowing, and I am sweating. <laughs> uh, I'm a sweating neuroscientist, and I mean, as Jamie already alluded to, uh, large groups of uh, brain cells within within the cortex within the brain. Are capable of generating coherent synchronous activity in the form of brain waves. And uh, those brain waves have been previously demonstrated in an experimental study to be very much temperature sensitive. So, if you experimentally, in a controlled environment, change the temperature in which very thin sections of brain are, are maintained from which you're recording these brain waves, you can see uh, changes in the uh, dynamics of this activity. So ultimately, if you push that temperature too far, uh, you can, in some cases, particularly in um, in children, elicit seizures. And this is very well documented in the case of febrile seizures, where young kids who... Are still their brains are still trying to learn in terms of um, the adaptation processes with regard to thermoregulation. Uh, if their temperature rises due to a fever, uh, out of physiological ranges, it can actually elicit a, a febrile seizure.
1: So a seizure is like a kind of epileptic fit, yes. kind yeah, of like on the floor shaking uncontrollably. Yes, yeah.
6: yes, yes, yes. And uh, so there is good evidence that our brains are very sensitive to, to temperature. And if we are not able to control that, uh, then pathological or, or dysfunctional activity can arise.
1: And Andy, I think you, I believe you have rustling there in your hands. One way that we could make sure that we don't increase the temperature too much, so to help us cool down, what what's this?
3: Well, this what I'm holding are, are, are birch leaves. So these these are uh, traditional Russian uh, method and approach to actually shake and administer little droplets of water so that you can cool down while you're in the banya, and also also these these are gently these are gently used to um to promote blood flow to the skin while you're in the banya, which is an important aspect of the entire process and i think the the increased blood flow is is actually very good for the brain because because by Increasing the oxygen supply, particularly to the prefrontal cortex, that will allow us to experience the, uh, the, the, the entire banya in a, in a much greater and, and more memorable fashion. That's so what, what so what, if we continue know, to... It's,
1: it's, it's really cooling um, and incredibly pleasant. Uh, I'm getting nice rushes of air to my face as you're whipping me. Um, I don't know what to say, I'm speechless actually. That was all in the name of getting in touch with the local tradition and demonstrating how our body and brains regulate temperature, or so I was told. So earlier in the episode, we heard from Rosamund and Natalia on their findings in the rat brain. But are human and rodent brains similar? Do the results really translate? I stepped out to the sunshine with another speaker at the conference
6: to find out. My name is Mark Cunningham, and I work at the Institute of Neuroscience at Newcastle University.
1: And we've been discussing earlier with Ros and also Natalia about using rats in order to try and understand more about the human brain. I mean, can you really extrapolate findings from the rat into the human?
6: I think you can extrapolate some features. Uh, What we've been doing at Newcastle University is trying to get around this problem by using human tissue. So this is human brain tissue that is being removed from patients' primarily who are undergoing elective neurosurgery for the treatment of of epilepsy. So these are patients that are not responding to conventional drug treatment and in order to um, try and cure their epilepsy, so the majority of patients do respond to anticonvulsants, but there is a significant proportion, around about 30%, which don't. And in those patients... Uh, surgical intervention is a very successful uh, intervention.
1: So you've got these treatment-resistant patients, and they undergo—they elect to undergo surgery to take out part of their brain in order to help with treatment. I mean, how much of the brain are you actually removing?
6: In many of these patients, the part of the brain that is causing the um, the uh, epilepsy to occur is the hippocampus. And so what uh, the surgeons and what the uh, neurologists and um, neurophysiologists will do is they will essentially work out which hippocampus it is, because, of course, we've got two hippocampus, one on both sides of our brain. And once they've ascertained which um, hippocampus is bad uh, or diseased, um, they will then work the patient up to make sure that... um, even though they're removing one hippocampus, that the hippocampus on the other side can compensate and and still cope uh, in terms of memory function because, of course, our hippocampus are critical for learning and memory. Um, So, I mean, the hippocampus is quite a large structure in the brain.
1: So I believe it's about the size of your little finger kind of curled up.
6: Yes, yes, that's correct. And in addition, they also remove another structure which is called the amygdala. And what's good about the, this uh, surgical operation is that they don't damage other structures that are in the temporal lobe that are critical for other higher order processes.
1: So, I mean, the amygdala is involved in kind of fear response, and the hippocampus is involved in learning and memory. And both of these brain structures are buried quite deep down in the brain. So, how does the surgeon get access? to those deep areas of the brain without hurting other areas of the brain?
6: So when we go into theatre to obtain um, our, our samples, it's it's been a, a real revelation for a scientist like myself to actually observe these neurosurgical procedures. And what the surgeons tend to do is they do a very delicate operation where they Approach the the hippocampus and the amygdala through a fissure in the brain. So what they're able to do is essentially um, pull apart um, the brain tissue and go down through a, a sort of um, a sort of valley in the brain, and then they can expose the hippocampus. And then what they do is they essentially suck the hippocampus out. So they they're able to selectively just suck out that that area, and the the tissue we we obtain um, some of the the tissue before it's actually um, sucked out and what we can then do is prepare very thin sections of of that tissue so we have these slices of brain which we're then able to maintain in an artificial environment which mimics some of the physiological features that um, the brain tissue would be exposed to if it was still in in the intact brain. So this uh, approach is known as the in vitro brain slice preparation And that then allows us unprecedented access in terms of recording human brain cell uh, activity, but also how uh, large groups of human brain cells um, behave in terms of generating organised electrical activity.
1: And so you're not actually getting the hippocampus and the amygdala that's being sucked out, you're actually getting the slice of the cortex so kind of round by your ears, and and you're getting that slice, and then putting it in a petri dish, a glass petri dish, and keeping it alive. How long can you keep that brain slice alive for, once it's been removed from the patient?
6: So far, our kind of uh, lab record is about 24 hours, in which we've been able to keep the tissue viable, so alive, after the surgeon has removed it, and then still be able, in our hands, to obtain... Uh, viable uh, electrophysiological, that's the electrical activity of the brain cell uh, recordings in the in vitro environment.
1: And I'm imagining that you've got to get this bit of brain tissue quickly from the neurosurgeon's unit to your own lab. I mean, how do you manage that?
6: So we're we're very lucky in, in Newcastle that we have a very strong tradition of translational interface between basic uh, biomedical science and and clinical neuroscience that's occurring, and um, that's really facilitated by the fact that our institute is contiguous with the hospital. So when we obtain the the tissue, we have uh, about a four minute dash downstairs from the uh, neurosurgery department to um, to my laboratory. And during that time, it should I should mention that the tissue is in an artificial cerebrospinal fluid that we make we make in the laboratory that's very very cold so it's essentially trying to biochemically um, sort of put the tissue into stasis Uh, and also this um, artificial cerebrospinal fluid is being continually oxygenated to keep the tissue alive so with those conditions and and a very rapid dash to the lab we can then section the tissue into thinner slices and then uh, sustain it alive in the in vitro environment.
1: So traditionally, looking at electrical activity within nerve cells, within brain cells, so that's how nerve cells communicate, using electricity, usually that's been done using rat brain or mouse brain slices, or even cells that have been dissociated and, and are in the petri dish, looking at the electrical activity. So there's lots of information in neuroscience on rat electrical activity Does it line up with the information that you're starting to get now with this human, really pinpointed electrical activity readings?
6: Certainly there are some features in terms of organised electrical activity which are are matching up, but we've also discovered novel patterns of epileptic activity that have not been reported before in rodent work so it is revealing some new aspects in terms of subtleties with respect to the dynamics of pathological activity that is occurring in the human epileptic brain
1: and what about non-epileptic brains so humans that haven't got epilepsy can you manage to get some brain tissue from from other people
6: well there's there's obviously uh, major ethical considerations that have to be taken place. You you can't go around um, taking out perfectly normal bits of of brain from human patients, but of course we do need to obtain control or comparison tissue, as it's sometimes called, which we can compare to the epileptic samples that we are obtaining. And one way that we can do this is that routinely the surgeons remove deep uh, tumours from patients, again, who are undergoing elective neurosurgery for for the removal of the the lesion. And in many cases, the surgeons, in order to gain access to that tumour, have to go through overlying cortex. So we're able to get, again, very small samples of that and use exactly the same uh, techniques that I've already discussed. And what we've been doing with, with these samples is, first of all, making sure that we don't see epileptic activity because they're they're non-epileptic comparison samples. But we've then also been able to essentially replicate some of the work that we've done previously in rodent tissue, which is where we can pharmacologically trick the brain slice into thinking that it's never left the brain. And uh, by adding different types of um, neurochemicals, we can produce... Uh, physiological brain waves, physiological uh, rhythms that are known to be associated with cognitive behavior and what we 've been doing with respect to this work is looking at how the the mechanisms apply to this activity and the differences that we see compared to rodents and there are differences we 're seeing uh, differences in terms of how this activity is generated um, and we believe that this may be due to um, simply the, the fact that the human brain has to operate on much larger scales than, than the rat brain. So it may simply be due to a, a question of scale.
1: So the rat brain is so much smaller than the human brain and so there's different oscillations in electrical activity that are involved in cognition which is thought to be kind of learning memory reasoning flexibility and thinking and planning
6: reassuringly one particular type of oscillation that we're interested in which is the gamma frequency oscillation it's produced in both rat brain the rat neocortex and the human uh, neocortex but the mechanisms by which it's being produced are different between each species
1: and do you think this might have implications for some of the research that's already been done on rats and some of the and the way that drugs are developed to help human patients both with epilepsy and also with problems with cognition so you know people with Alzheimer's or dementia for example.
6: So with particular reference to drug discovery um, there's been a real the, the pharmaceutical industry has really struggled in terms of translating a lot of drugs from preclinical studies into the clinical environment and in particular drugs uh, that they would like to target neuropsychiatric disease. So there have been a number of high-profile failures over the last couple of years. And my belief is that this may be due to the fact that there are these differences in terms of how uh, the human brain generates such activity as opposed to the rodent brain and so we need a better insight into how uh, the micro circuits of the human brain are producing this activity in order to uh, come up with much more refined drugs that can target this type of cognitive behavior.
1: So I mean this is this seems to be phenomenal work. I've never heard of anything like this before in the field of neuroscience. Um, is this the first time that this research has actually been shown at a conference?
6: It certainly is. the first time that we've presented this work at, a, at an international conference and we're currently trying to um, finish off a, a number of critical experiments so that we can uh, get this work published as, as quickly as possible.
1: Thanks, Dr Mark Cunningham from Newcastle University. We return to Natalia, who spoke earlier about growing up and studying in St. Petersburg and her current work in Europe. I wanted to find out from her if she would ever consider returning to research in Russia.
0: Well, I think at the moment it's quite improbable uh, that I will return to Russia. And um, there are several reasons for that. And I think the major one is that um, there are not so many labs that uh, do science, um, interesting science in in my field. Uh, usually, when you want to go abroad uh, for your research, you choose the best lab you can find uh, in uh, in your field. And um, in Russia, although I don't exclude the possibility that in the future it will change, because I know that there is um, a new policy in the financing funding of scientific research in Russia, and there is quite a lot of uh, subsidies uh, infused in the science at the moment. So. Maybe when uh, when I'm a senior scientist myself and I want to establish my own lab, there will be um, different opportunities for that. Uh. So the big initiatives,
1: the big funding initiatives that the government are currently spending huge amounts of money on, do you think it's really a long-term project that will help build up science in Russia
0: for the future? So... There is a policy to establishing new labs in Russia, so senior researchers will uh, get a lot of money to uh, found a new lab so that they hire new people and they uh, purchase uh, the equipment. And then once the lab is running, they just they can leave but the lab will be uh, taken over by uh, other scientists so basically they they use their expertise in the field to uh, found a new lab that will be uh, um, then they will that will stay in russia and that will um, they will uh, do research So it's a case of the government
1: very cleverly training the scientists
0: of the future. So, yes, so the government um, now tries to attract good Russian scientists that are now working abroad so that they come back and they train new scientists which will stay in Russia and will, uh, yeah, do science. I hope in the future Russia will be very strong in science. And there is certainly a lot of potential. What happens now in Russian science and what happened uh, already for a a very long time is that uh, Russia has the um, capability to train uh, brilliant scientists, but then there there are not enough opportunities for those scientists to do research in Russia. So basically there are very good scientists trained in Russia that leave and uh, uh, go abroad and continue research there. So the the government now tries to reverse this and uh, to uh, uh, attract those scientists uh, back uh, to Russia. And I think that in the future, Russia will be very strong in science.
1: So the Russian brain drain may be reversed and stronger science funding looks likely on the offing. Thanks to all of the guests on the show and the inaugural Siberian Neuroscience Conference organizers for hosting me. From Russia with love. This is the Naked Neuroscience podcast with me, Hannah Critchlow, brought to you in association with the Wellcome Trust and in partnership with the British Neuroscience Association.